It's a gentle journey Worthy of the weight Like the wild goose flying With its only mate An all-enduring spirit On the whiskey trail I just don't, I, we're not in the same room together, so it's very difficult to work out if this is an AI Gordon Dundas or the real Gordon Dundas, and I have no way of knowing. Well, there is a glitch in the m- 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 matrix. <laughs> so, uh, and, yeah. uh, if it was AI, Gordon, I'd be three stone lighter. And I, yes, I'd be <laughs> two foot higher as well. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so it's um... still the real as well. Welcome to the real in the flesh. Alice Gordon Dundas. Gordon, this is Series 7, Episode 8. Welcome to Whiskey Unscripted, The Human. Yeah, great to be here. Looking forward to this one. I'm really excited by this episode because we're focusing, unlike us, mainly on one thing. Yes, it is. It's Um, a great interview by Professor Mike Billett, which we'll talk about later on. I'm sure if you've read the description in the podcast, it's all there, but... It was a comprehensive interview. It lasts mm. a bit of time, but it's just fascinating. It's so inextricably linked to whiskey. Is yeah. it, would you say? Oh, like it, it, absolutely. The history of you know whiskey and 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 this is 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 synonymous. I mean, it's the only way to describe it. But before we begin all this, we're recording this end of November twenty twenty three. You're all tasked with looking at whiskey news and I'm going to almost almost unless you've got one there's only been one story that people have been getting in touch with me and that's mm-hmm. a certain bottle of Macallan that went mm. up for auction Gordon and two million mm. quid later yeah look I mean that's an amazing amount of money for a bottle of whiskey and uh it's um it's a very nice PR story for Macallan and uh it's uh, in a market where you know, you know, it's, it's a slightly different market at that level than it probably was a few years ago. But uh, no, really, been, really good. Could have went look, more. Could, could have went more. Could have, could, could have. I mean, I don't know, but yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it was a nineteen twenty six, was it not? I think it was. Yes, yes. Um, and um, you know, one of the oldest whiskies around. So, look, I mean, you know, people have a view on it. It's a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's whatever. It's it's a PRable story for McAllen. So well done to them. And this, of course, uh, maybe not so much whiskey news. It's just now the releases, and it's now the job of of selling. Mm-hmm. Really, that's what yeah. I would imagine exercising the industry at the moment. They've done their releases. It's now get the gifting going. Anything caught your eye, Gordon? Out well, there? I was. I, I I was actually. I was in Inter. I was in Germany at the weekend. I was in Inter whiskey at the weekend, and I did try a few interesting drafts. Nice. Um, I have a bottle of this at home, but I've not tried it. Rylaw, which is from Inch Dearney Distillery, um, in that really unique bottle with its sort of that really sort of metal top. I have a bottle at home, and I was it's a Scottish rye, a Fife rye whiskey, and I was expecting this sort of peppery type sort of flavour, but actually none of that at all. Uh, really interesting story on the yeast that they use at different times of the year and different types of barley and that the, the, they're using to produce their whiskies going forward at the moment. And I think their next release is not coming for a while, but really, really interested by Rylo. I was speaking to Julie there who just gave me the whole story on behind it. And it was a really interesting whiskey. So that is what I'm drinking currently I... called a Fife single grain whiskey. Okay. And they got the word Fife seems to be okay with the SWA. So I was surprised by that, but it's a low, but it technically it's a lowland single grain, of course, because it's not, it's not just malt, it's rye plus other. So it's therefore a single grain because it's the product of one distillery. Um, and it's from Fife. So a really, really lovely whiskey. And for those listening out with those shores of the United Kingdom, Fife, a lovely place on the East coast of Scotland. The um, home mm-hmm. of golf, St Andrews, is just along yeah, the road. And it also has a place called Ochtermachti. It does. And we did inch dearney on uh, You Have Arrived at Your Whiskey Destination, the game show we occasionally play on the show, Gordon. Which I believe ITV have been in touch. They have, yeah. <laughs> and told me to desist my pestering of them or um, not to come within 200 metres of the chief executive. No. What? Um, now, you're what drinking. Are you drinking? That. 
because it's a peak uh, episode, our friend Vinny from the whiskey shop in London mm-hmm. gave me a lovely example, some Thompson Brothers. Oh, nice. I'm holding it up to the camera. A nine-year-old octave of Kalila. Oh, that'll be nice. 59.1%. That'll be good. That is. And I've not tried it that yet. That will be good. I'm sure that will be good. Oh. Now. Oh-hoo-hoo. Lovely. So, Kaila, of course, a peated whiskey. Oh, I can tell you that. Well, that's just what Mike will be talking about. And, Gordon, when I was having a drink of Kalila, I just thought, I don't know if you know, and until I did my research a few months ago, I didn't know that one of the founders or one of the owners of Kalila was um, the Bullock family, Bullock, Laid and Co. And would you believe it? One of the 15 investors in Tamdu in 1897. So what comes around, mm. there you go, goes around. So along with Tommy Dewar, William Grant of Glenfiddich, we've got the old Bullock, Laid and Co. who we were up till World War One third most profitable whiskey company in Scotland. And then they came a cropper with the war and the high barley prices and the slump and the Great mm-hmm. Depression. Their name sort of faded. Mm, there you go. I didn't know that. A, you learn something every day. Um, just, just to tease us before we go into this interview, but when I say Pete to you, what comes to mind? Smoke. <laughs> Let's look for brands. <laughs> oh, sorry. Right. Uh, good I'm having a lovely um, Kalila here. Well, I mean, you know, Isla's your first port of call. It's where you think about, you know, peated whiskies come from. But actually, they're not all peated. Bunahavans aren't all peated. Brooklades are not all peated, you know. And uh, actually, there's a lot of peated whiskies in the Highlands as well. And you look at the new release of Mikkel Tor from, uh, from the guys at Glenallachie, Billy Walker's first whiskey that's been all the way through made by him. And that's very much focusing on the influence of Highland peat, which is a very different product to Isla peat because of mainly the fact there's more trees and it's not got that maritime style to it. So really, really different, different peats around the, which I'm sure we'll, we'll cover off, but very, very different peats around, around the country. You know, if you, if you start at one end of, of the Scotch whiskey spectrum in terms of spirit style, let's just talk about spirit style. We're going to start at the very lightest possible end. Most people would think of maybe an Ockentoshan. Uh, you know, with its high spirit strength of 81, that sits at one end. And in, in the lowlands, you're probably thinking more of the lowland whiskies, but that light style's at one end. And then you think of something like Octomore at the other, heavily peated to 160, 200 plus ppm in the barley. And 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 every other single whiskey in the whole of Scotch whiskey, there's 142 distilleries producing single malt, they all sit somewhere between that range you know, in terms of their PPM level, in terms of their flavors, in a very general sense, there's a bit of up and down, but that's how I I consider this industry to be as diverse as it is. And Pete brings a huge part into that. And um, it's interesting how Pete can impact or not impact how you then dial up your production process. So I was, I was speaking to Barry McCaffer from Lafroy and he was saying, if we go to a, clearer wort so we're actually producing a wort that's clearer in style we we, we're we're filtering it more uh using the husks of the grain he says most of the peat disappears and you know i don't have strong peaty notes in lefroig and i'm like that's really interesting so probably when he's producing his 10 year old and and you know a large percentage of what he's wanting to do he'll be using a much cloudier wort so it's not as simple as just using peat it's how you then use it through the process and Barry was very kind when we visited there last year. To Wasn't he? Why? Open did up the kiln and got the smoke. It was wonderful. Get right yeah, in the kiln. Smelt yeah. the Freud smoke garden. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Even I, I haven't told you this, but I went to the Bowmore Co-op later on that night, reeking of peat smoke from the Freud kiln. And I was getting chased down the high street. It was just mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. That perfume, that aroma, it's just mm-hmm. irresistible mm-hmm. to the locals. <laughs> It is, yes, that's very true. But I mean, it's it. But I mean, you know, what, what I know what we're going to cover off in this book, you know, in this sort of interview is so such a, you know, the history of it and the importance of it, and why, you know, we have all those distilleries on the islands and in the extremities predominantly that used peat because that's all they had. Yeah, yes, and then probably more of the inland distilleries 
you know, like the Speyside distilleries using it because there wasn't enough peated whiskey to be used in blending. So they were using peat as well. And and remember, all of this diversity in single malt becomes all about selling whiskey to blenders. It was all about creating blends, not about single malt back in the early 1900s, back in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, you know? Well, sit back with your dram and would it surprise you, Gordon, that we might lower... Um the tone with some famous Pete's later on in the podcast, but let's Uh just enjoy. And just to get us going into the book, just some praise for the book because it's in page one and it might just Uh whet the appetite. Charles McLean says it's an outstanding contribution to whiskey literature. He says it's among the most important books about whiskey ever written. Gavin D. Smith, compelling and entertaining. He goes on. Neil Wilson, a unique work. Brian Townsend, uh, a timely book, indeed one long overdue. Billy Abbott, a much-needed dissection of the history of one of Scotch whiskey's most uh, important ingredients. And the master distiller of Glen Scotia and Campbelltown, Ian J. McAllister, it's an mm. inspirational, wonderful, engaging, educational, mm. thought-provoking. That's just some... And Dave Broom does a forward. So that's just some of the great and the good, mm-hmm. Gordon, of the industry. The, and that shows you how important, how inextricably linked this product, this amazing... And it's not a product per se, but this amazing compressed vegetation, if you like, <laughs> that really simply, you know, can grow as or can sort of be created as slowly as one millimeter a year. Yeah. So, you know, a meter to create a meter of peat, you need a thousand years yeah. of um of time to get to one meter of peat is when you think of it like that, it just blows your mind. Oh, it's, no. it's mental. That's a great we'll, start. We'll I'll hear get some... all of that. Oh, and we'll hear all cool. of that. So this is from the professor himself. Here's the interview. Sit back and enjoy. Mike Billets. Mike, good evening. Thank you for inviting me. First time to Glengoyne. First time to Glengoyne and, um, you know, delighted to be here. It's a beautiful time of year. Um, it's lively. It's full of people. And um, very friendly. We had a good chat there with yeah, our friend and, Ronnie uh, Berry. Yeah, Ronnie Berry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is the honest truth. What happened? We went out. Good to take Mike, who has written a book, Pete and Whiskey: The Unbreakable Bond. And we talk about Pete and with the the book because I think it's a great whiskey present. There's Ronnie Berry, who is a blue badge tour guide for twenty yeah. odd years. I know him very well. Yes. And in his car. He had your book. Amazing. What a man. <laughs> and we signed it in the still house. <laughs> yeah, so I did a little scribble in the, in his book. And um, oh, yeah, nice. it, and uh, yeah, he's already asked me questions about it, which is why I write the book. And that's what know. we're here to do right now. So yeah. that, 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 what a coincidence. That was <laughs> and uh, so, Mike, tell us about the book. First and foremost question is, when did it come out? Uh, Pete and Whiskey, The Unbreakable Bond, was published about two and a half weeks ago. Um, we did... A couple of debut events before that and the Whiskey Show in London, Wigton Book Festival, but um, it arrived in booksellers uh, in the UK two and a half weeks ago. Um, in North America, it's going to be released next year. All right. Okay. So and you were saying earlier on, was it the Wigton Book Festival when you were doing a whiskey tasting? Yeah, I did a whiskey tasting. They asked me to um, provide some bottles, which I found no difficulty doing. <laughs> Lots of willing, uh, willing people. It was great. And I did a whiskey tasting... Uh, to uh, to the literati of uh, oh. of Wigton, and they thoroughly enjoyed it. And I told it was a historic event because this is a, was the first time a peatland scientist has ever done a whiskey tasting, and um, they seem to enjoy it. I know. So this is yeah. it. This is what Ronnie was saying. Yeah. How good it is. You are a, a genuine professor. Is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was a professor at Stirling University um, for oh, that was my last job. Yeah, right. and I stepped away from from the academic world to do other things. But that um, academic world was part of... Yeah, I, I, uh, I worked on peatlands throughout the British Isles, Scandinavia, um, and, the, and in the north, the Canadian Arctic. So, on, you know, some of the big issues associated with peatlands, you know, it's a place that I, you know, they're, they're landscapes I love um, and, you know, I feel quite passionate about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of change going on in, in peatlands and obviously peatlands and peat are a... Are a major issue at the moment everybody's talking about it but i'm also a you know passionate about whiskey as well so i wanted to to write a a book um that really opened up and got people to understand more about peatlands because in writing this book you know i found there's a huge amount of interest in them and really you know people want to know people want to have the right kind of conversations and you know i think you know what i did i mean the number of books about 
Pete already written by, by scientists. Um, but I wanted to write a book about Pete and Peatlands, if you like, through the lens of whiskey. Yeah, that's not been um, done before. Though, no, it's not been done before. And you know, it's something I'm passionate about and obviously something I'd like to, to see continue yeah. uh, in, in the future. So we talk about Pete shortly, but just even on that subject of writing the book, yeah. how long... Did it take you to yeah, I mean, obviously, anybody who tried to write a book in the last three or four years was interrupted by the global pandemic. But about four years um, of research and writing. And in, during that period, um, I, I explored the subject. I, mean, I, I read every book on whiskey I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I dived down into the archives of, of libraries and companies and things like that. And I also uh, went out and explored some of the, the peatlands, which were once used by... Um, the whiskey industry, but you know, I come from a, a scientific background, an academic background, and when we write science, we write in a very formulaic and systematic mm-hmm. way. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure, Gordon, of uh-huh. reading a, a scientific paper. Well, yes. you know, it probably doesn't set the world alight, but we have we have an abstract, an introduction, and all these kind of uh, things. Well, you know, to write a, a book which you know want to be read widely by non-scientists. You know, I, I needed something else. So I, I quickly recognised I needed to go back to school. Mm-hmm. So I um, enrolled on an a, a evening class at Edinburgh University on uh, re, a creative writing of non-fiction, which oh. was fabulous, you know. Right. So this taught me to write in a, in a rather different way. Um, you know, it allows you to kind of throw, out, throw those rules of grammar out of the window. That, that you must have been Oh, it was wonderful. You know, uh, things that you weren't allowed to do at school. So, you know, it really opened my mind to, to writing a different way. And I think you need that when you write a book like this yeah. because, um, you know, there is obviously, um, you know, popular science in here, but hopefully popular science that ex- explained, you know, oh, wow. in a good way. Because, you know, to be honest, I mean, the first chapter of this book is called um, The Story of a Piece of Peat and it was probably the hardest one to write. That's what I was going to see. Where does it begin? Yeah, the story of a piece of peat is really about this. Um, it's about the creation of this substance, uh, this substance, this soil, which is so uh, important in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's it's Scotland's um, most common soil, arguably Scotland's most um, um, it, you know significant soil in terms of its ability to lock up carbon, provide energy, and around about twenty percent of Scotland's. Uh, Covered in peat. Is that right? Yeah. So, so where did it come from? We're never going to run out of peat. Where did it come let's from? Go, well, get, let's get the basics out yeah, of the road. Right well, let's now. go. Let's go all the way back to the ice age. So, okay. ten thousand years ago, when the glaciers retreated from the landscapes of this part of the world, vegetation started to arrive, and peat would form in the damp, wet places. And um, over the last ten thousand years, peatlands have gradually grown layer by layer, year by year. And um, we now have peatlands in parts of Scotland that might be 10 metres thick. And it's just vegetation? Yeah, it's, it's basically vegetation that, um, that dies, breaks down very, very slowly, but not completely. So each year you get an incremental accumulation of peat. And we say it's on average about a millimetre a year of peat accumulates uh, in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, some parts of the world uh, it accumulates faster, probably faster on the west coast of Scotland. So in Scotland, we have this, what we call this um, perfect uh, climate envelope for peat formation. So we have, you know, vegetation growth, but we have obviously a wet climate. And as you go west, you have that warm, wet climate, which is absolutely perfect for, for peat formation. So year on year, um, over, over time, we, we accumulate peat and the peat records stories, stories of our past vegetation stories of volcanic eruptions from Iceland, all these things are trapped. And as you get more and more into the modern times, you see the impact of man coming into play. Um, so it is a, it is a unique soil. Um, and it's a very special soil and a soil that we kind of treasure. But, you know, in terms of the, the, the whiskey industry, one of the most important things is that peat is 90% water. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of distilleries, yeah, a lot of distilleries, um, you know, require peatlands to provide um, provide their, their water um, sources so you know when we dry peat you know the water content goes down to about 50 percent and then it will be dried on the surface and then it will arrive at maltings um for uh for, for burning for, for, mm-hmm. for currently in our flavor so just to even to take it back before that i want to get to the whiskey but just yeah, yeah, when did whiskey. mankind start using peat ah very interesting question 
Um, when I was researching this book, I came across lots of really interesting stories. But one of the most interesting peat stories was from the Isle of Barra. Um, somebody, a crofter was cutting peat and around about one metres below the surface, his um, peat cutting tool, his tarashka, cracked on some hard, dry peat bricks. And it, it turned out that he'd found the oldest peat stack ever known to man about 3,600 years ago. And for whatever reason, that peat stack was never, you know, the peat was never returned to the crofts and it just got buried in time. So it'd be cut, it'd be stacked. And one of the most amazing things about this, Gordon, is that in those peat bricks, you see the imprints of human fingers. And the human fingers are so small, they could only be children. So, you know, you have this picture, you know, you reflect on what you've seen of a young family cutting peat on the island of Barra on the west coast of Scotland, stacking the peat, drying it, and for whatever reason, they never use that peat. So it asks lots of questions yeah. about what happened next. And, you know, that's amazing. that was an amazing, uh, you know, thing I found and, um, and it was recorded. We're just talking about, when we took you on a tour of the distillery there, we're just talking about wow moments. And I talked about when I do the research for this distillery, I had a couple of wow moments. And yeah. to me, that must have been one of the wow moments as well. That was a wow moment. I mean, there's lots of stories recorded in Pete about things that have been discovered, you know. Um, but this was this was something I mean, something special. And, yeah. um, you know, I, 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 I actually knew one of the professors who was involved in that piece of work. As well as who you provided with these wonderful photographs. So, so use as a fuel source first yeah. for well, things like thousands of years. Yeah. What whiskey? Mm. Where's the you know yeah. intersection with peat and whiskey? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, peat was was used as a source of energy, obviously in in houses, black houses, crofts, and when the uh, when we started to when stills were used. You, you needed energy, and particularly on the west coast, many parts of the highlands, uh, the forests had been cut down, people had cleared the forest, you know, farmers had arrived, and the only fuel source they re- really have were, was peat. There's no coal to speak of in you know, the Western Isles or in large parts of the highlands, so obviously not the case where we are in the central belt of Scotland, but um, they would use peat um, to fire the stills, to heat water, and those and not only to just do, you know, to dry the barley and that those flavours associated with burning peat, those aromas, because peat, you know, on itself, dry peat smells of nothing. You need to combust it to create the aromas and flavours, those phenols that people talk about. I mean, naturally, peat contains these remains of plants and these, these compounds are hundreds of thousands or millions of carbon atoms, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, they're in size, but they're not, Odoractive, they're not volatile. You need to smash them apart with heat to create these phenolic compounds. So over time, you know, peat was initially used, and it's surprising how many distilleries used it as a source of energy and fuel. But as as distilleries grew, they needed another source of fuel because you couldn't heat large stills or, or large anything um, with the energy from peat. So coal arrived, and that coal changed the whole thing because you could generate um, huge amounts of energy by burning coal. So peat then became a kind of a secondary component, but it still lived on as a flavour. It become, it become embedded in, in the flavour of, of whiskey from the Western Isles, from particularly wow. Highland-style style whiskey. And now it's basically used, used as a flavouring, yeah. not, not as an but energy source. In that source. cold journey, we're talking mid-19th century, and you mentioned about uh, Speyside. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, interestingly, you know, I was surprised in writing this book how how important peat was as a flavour for Speyside whiskies. Um, for, and they all, many of the distilleries had, had their own peat banks as well. So in the silent season in the summer, the families um, of the distillery workers used to go up, cut peat, dry it and bring it back. And that was all part of the annual cycle of, of distilling. But when the railways arrived in Speyside, that, that changed because all of a sudden, you know, coal mined in the central belt of Scotland, you know, you know, branched out, radiated around across the railway systems of Scotland. So many distilleries were kind of built on railways or moved to railways so they could get close to this this new uh, new energy source. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the peat 
disappears from Speyside. Um, yes, but not not, not totally. Not, okay. No, okay. not totally. Or? Yeah, I mean, there are one or two you know distilleries that still. You know, I think Balvenie have a peat week still. Um, and I think uh, there's one or two other distilleries, Glen Glenriach, I think, wow. who still you know will malt. But basically, it it you know the characteristics or the flavours of Speyside whisky change but you know it was well known as a, as a peated whiskey for quite a long time wow. um and which i said is was based on you know these peatlands i you know in the book i do a lot of walking and i like to revisit the past and go into these peatlands and and research them well, on that point yeah. where did you go then you know you said you yeah. got your boots on and yeah your i got my where, boots on i mean yeah peat scientists love to get wet feet you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in Speyside, I walked what I call the Peat Road, which connects a distillery cluster of Cardu, um, Nokandu, mm-hmm. up over the Manak Hill down to, you know, um, the distillery size in the kind of north part of the Spey, yeah. uh, towards Elgin. And in that area, you find a, a peatland called Bernie Moss, um, which was cut hugely for distilleries. Um, near Tomintal, there's the Femasak, which was part of the flavour of and live it for a long time. Famous, it means a filthy mire. So it's a very and, boggy and place. Near Tomintal, Tom yeah. So they basically became such an important uh, source there and, and for other distilleries as well. And all over Scotland, even in the Central Belt, you can come across uh, peatlands which were often named, uh, particularly by Barnard. He was very good at um, that, you know, naming and, yeah. and uh, Alfred recording. Alfred Barnard in, 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 his, in his... I didn't know about the Central Belt. Yeah. I always thought it branched... Pete, you know, in my head, and yeah, I'm yeah. sure I've stood a map or two. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. With Pete going right up the west coast, under the islands, yeah, of yeah, right yeah, round yeah. a bit. The, yeah, I'm well, sure I did. The map's obviously wrong. Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, there are peatlands, uh, particularly there's a group of peatlands called the Slamana Plateau between pretty much Falkirk and Cumbernauld and to the south of the motorway, which provided peat for Bankia, uh, St Magdalene Distillery, and possibly Rosebank. Some people have picked up peaty flavours in Rosebank and Barnard describes these peat banks and of course peat would then be transported up and down the canal system in Scotland and interestingly if you go back even further Gordon Orkney peat was was shipped south from an island called Edie and it found its way in distilleries in the central belt um, you know it came to the port of Leith and then it went out to Edinburgh distilleries it went to distilleries in Fife and it even went south to some of the old English distilleries and possibly even to Australia as well. So we have this little island in the, in the North Orkney group that I talk about in the book called the Peat Island. And you can go to this, these islands and you can see the jetty where the peat was delivered. You can see pictures of steamships taking peat south. And, you know, the port of Leith was a major, you know, a major destination for ED peat. From- Which brings into the, the other uh, question... Um, is all peat the same? Um, peat is certainly not the same. Um, uh, basically, the key thing is vegetation, Gordon. Um, in in Scotland, we have these these differences between east and west coast peat. So, an Orkney peat will generally be drier. It will have more shrubs, probably more heather. Whereas, you go to the west coast peats um, in Isla, for example, and Skye, they'll be much wetter with a sort of different vegetation. And then we talk about highland peats, which is a bit more woody. But outside the United Kingdom, that's where it's get quite exciting in the moment of the world of whisky. We have distilleries that are using local peat in Sweden, in Denmark, in Australia, New Zealand, Minnesota, Seattle, all using local sources of peat. And of course, the vegetation is quite different, uh, you know, really different. And we've tasted some recently. And you can begin to, they're beginning to appear on the market and there are definitely flavour differences. Yeah, and, yeah and, and I think one of the, you know, um, you know, the word terroir creates a lot of, um, yes. a lot of... Um, yes, debate. <laughs> Let's say debate. Debate, yeah, that's yeah. the word in the whiskey world. And, um, you know, what I think what I found as I've learned more and more about the whiskey uh, distilling is how much a distiller can alter the profile of the phenolic components for it, the smoky components, by changing the distillation run, cutting at different uh, points. So, you know, I think when you look at, I'm going to mention that word again, terroir. When you look at terroir, I think um, the the definition that I like to think of is is the definition that involves the artisan, the distiller in this particular case, 
or in winemaking, you know, the, the wine producer. They can provide their own local particular skill. I mean, everybody talks about Lagavulin and Kalila, how different the two whiskies are, you know, with the same malt specification in terms of phenolics. Yeah, which is, then sets off another question about what is, you mentioned the word phenol, phenolics, and the high, yeah. the carbons, instead of the whole thousands and thousands of carbons yeah, yeah. inside peat. So what gives the flavour? What is a phenol, and is, that, is yeah, that the only chemical in peat? Or is there yeah, a, I mean, a whole other... Basically, I, I think one of the, the best ways I can describe what happens in a peat bog is think of the maturation process. So when plants die, um, their, their chemistry basically the plant's decomposed. And first of all, you, you get the simple things like sugars and cellulose. They break down really quickly in a peat bog. They disappear quite quickly. And then you get the bigger compounds are lasting longer in the maturation process. Mm-hmm. So you get these, these compounds called uh, uh, polyphenols. And I said these are enormous compounds. Lignin is a very good example of them. And they reside for thousands upon thousands of years. So as you go, as you go deeper and deeper and deeper in a bog, the, the characteristics of the peat changes. It's not just in terms of the, you know, geographically when we look at different parts of the world, but it's also as you go deeper uh, in the peat bog um, that the, the the components change. So you get this sort of maturation process that goes on in in peats, and then you get end up with this, you know, really old peat. So it's cold, it's acidic, it's dark. Nothing really breaks down, and that's why it's a fantastic preservative. For anything, okay. whether it be plants or whether it be old peat stacks, even. and that's why sometimes you find ne- Neolithic people trapped in peat bogs. Yeah, you find all sorts of strange things in peat bogs. I mean, you know, you find yeah, not, not yeah, you find human remains, yeah. you find remains of animals, plants, old midges as well so, in peat bogs. As well. Is attractive? <laughs> one of them? Did you not see some tractors? <laughs> Yeah, all sorts of things can disappear in peat, peat bogs. Oh, I mean, wow. I've lost a fair few pa- pairs of boots, you know, and wellies in peat bogs. But. Uh, PPM, phenols part per million, that's how whiskey engages itself on, yeah, yeah, on pe- that scale. Yeah, people is, get, some people get very yeah, up about Absolutely. That. I've met people who want to, to, you know, taste the smokiest, highest PPM phenol component. I think this is a, important to remember that almost always... Um, the PPM phenol concentration in whiskey refers to the ingrain phenol con- concentration produced by the maltster. And I think the reason for that is because of the trade in malt. So if you have a product and you trade it, you trade it with a certain specification, and that, that's where the phenol component kind of comes from. And how can you increase or decrease the phenol content in your barley? How do it, they do it? Well, they do it by, um, well, first of all, blending un malted grain with, with sorry un, so unpeated grain with, with peated grain so you mix oh yes you know, so that dilutes it, it. That, that just drops it and yeah, dilutes yeah. it but for example at Port Ellen maltings they have a number of different specifications for their for their peated malt and that involves if you like more or less smoke longer smoking and that's the same at Springbank as well with things like long row Springbank you know when they're making long row at um, Springbank, they shut the doors and they, they shovel as much peat as they possibly can and you get this complete immersion and recycling of the smoke as well. Now, now on that point, someone actually said to me, who's in the whiskey industry, um, the, is there a difference between smokiness and peatiness? Is it just the same thing? Because he's getting more to people saying smoke is different from peat. Yeah, I think... Um, what is the... What, Drill into that one. Yeah, I, I mean, thought it was just peat was being burned. Is it because there's other? Yeah, well, I I've asked that question many times as well, and uh, I think it's probably something we'll still be asking in, yeah, you yeah. know, in, in years to come. But you know, of course, in in the world at the moment, people are trying to use other things apart from peat. So I think one or two distilleries in the past, Highland Park, I think, was an example. Glen Orr's example would use other woody components to add a different sort of flavour component. You know, there's a whiskey uh, produced yeah. from Sweden called Machmira Rök, which means smoked, and they use a layer of juniper to add that Swedishness uh, to it. But people, you know, um, I've talked to people who have, you know, drunk and, and tasted many more whiskies than I have about about this difference. I mean, people talk about peatiness as as more earthiness, but you know, um, I find it a, a tricky subject. But certainly, when you you, you taste whiskies made with manuka wood, I mean the New Zealanders are really into that, that okay. kind of thing. 
Um, and, and also, you know, also you have to remember that, that peat is different types of lignin or different types of polyphenols. So, you know, when you taste, um, for example, uh, Westland now, they've got a, a peated expression. It's, it's quite different. Yeah. Um, and different with different flavour components. So it's a, it's a fascinating subject that that you know, and, and especially when you touched upon two things, uh, yeah. peat being extracted, which we have to maybe address that. Yeah, we can address room, that. <laughs> which is the sustainability and and environmental concerns about extraction of peat. What did you discover in your four year journey? Yeah, I mean, I I work quite a lot in this area as well because one of the you know. You know, as a scientist, one of the things we were measuring in peatlands was change. And that's change associated with climate change, which actually is probably a bigger impact on peatlands throughout the world than extraction, to be totally honest. And that's extreme weather events, that's drought, that's, you know, floods, et cetera, et cetera, you know, d- you know damaging the peat. But we worked on change, and one of the things we worked a lot on was restoration. So this is returning peatlands to good, what we call ecological conditions, where they start to function in the way they should. That means they're locking up carbon year on, year on, year on, you know, as one of these tools that we're, we're using to fight climate change. So um, I think the key thing about the United Kingdom is about 80% of the, our peatlands are damaged in some shape or form. And that's not just about extraction. Extraction probably is a, is a small part of that. That's about fire, um, burning, um, overgrazing, drainage, forestation, all these things that damage the natural system. And, you know, peatland restoration is not rocket science. Most of it involves blocking those drains, bringing the water table back up, recreating those boggy, wet places that we all kind of love. So you can extract the peat and yeah, well, put um, it back to yeah, I mean, I mean purpose of yeah, there's, up carbon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think the, ch- the, the opportunity, if you like, for the whiskey industry is to embrace restoration. And I talk about this in the latter parts of the book because we get into the subjects of sustainability um, and um, restoration. And um, what basically it involves is involve a calculation of how much peat the whiskey industry uses each year. And there are different numbers. I would estimate six to 7,000 tonnes of dry peat a year, which is 2 or 3% of the total peat extracted in the United Kingdom. So it's a very small amount but obviously the whiskey industry wants to do the right thing and it's got i think it's got excellent environmental credentials and that is historical for historical reasons as well but basically the i think the whiskey industry and some of the you know beam Suntory is starting to do this now they are they're starting to restore peat, peatlands and the science has moved on work with scientists work with the right kind of people to recreate peat and to basically regrow the peat at a faster rate than you're actually extracting it so sustainability is all about, you know, putting back as much as you take out. But ideally, I think the opportunities, because so many of our peatlands are damaged, are huge. There's a, there's a huge opportunity for the whiskey industry. Well, I never knew that. I don't think many people listening yeah. will know that the peat can continue to grow. It's all yeah. like, for me, I've just heard about the one-way street. No, we no. extract, yeah, we yeah, extract, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise it was... Yeah, that. I mean, peat grows on average about one millimetre a year. Some of the peatlands I worked on were growing at four or five millimetres a year. And very often, you know, it's, it's about, you know, um, um, restoring peats. Um, and also, as I said, you know, it's not rocket science. Bringing the water table back. And within tw- 10 or 20 years, we'll get a, a, a peatland ecosystem, which is beginning to lock up carbon again. So it's about, um, I think it's about engaging with the right people. And I said there's some good examples. And, of course, one of the big wins, I think, for the whiskey industry is water. You know, many of, uh, many of uh, the whiskey industry's, you know, water supplies are coming from catchments which have peat on them. And if the peat is damaged in some way, the water just runs off. There's no storage capacity. So if you're talking about water supply security... And also water quality as well, because peat will filter water, will take all the bad things out. So, so it's you know it's very important in terms of if you like, we call it flattening the curve, mm-hmm. which means taking out those extreme, um, you know, floods, or protecting it drought and getting a more continuous supply of, of water. Which is amazing. That's a very hot topic in this country. The listening very, from elsewhere around the world, we've yeah. had many many floods and uh, yeah yeah. 
Uh, I get caught up in a few last week. Now, um, places you visited. Any nice whiskers? Whiskey unscripted. What places, um, either from tasting or just from visuals, did you um, take to very well when you were on your journeys? Uh, it was, there were so many. I mean, COVID, you know, changed a lot of people's lives and allowed me to visit sort of places that I liked. I mean, you know, you, you might be surprised to hear the book actually ends in the Faroe Islands. Well, I shouldn't say that, actually, because people won't buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> and you start. But, um, you know, that, that, was a, that was a visit to, to talk to um, uh, Ina Vag, who, who's making whiskey there. Um, you weren't allowed to make whiskey in the Faroe Islands until relatively recently because oh. of the laws. Um, but it is a place where it's a place of pilgrimage for peat and scientists. Because, you know, yes, because. It, because it's just covered in peat. <laughs> and it was being used and extracted uh, over the years. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Uh, lots of things turned my head. Archives, I found things in archives. Well, this is what we talked about earlier on. Yeah. Yes, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one so, of the most, you know, amazing moments, I think, you know, when we all research stories, Gordon, you've researched them <laughs> like I do, and you drill down the rabbit hole of research and suddenly you have this moment and you think, wow. And in the... In the um, archives of the of Glasgow University and um, there's a distillery archive for Banahaven and this is probably relates to Michael Moss who, who worked at the University of Glasgow and I I'm, you know the thing that really opened my eyes and sort of got me excited was four distillery peat books and they record and I went to the archive they record um, the period from 1885 to, to 1963 in which Banahaven's spirit basically still is occasionally but um and in the archives it records every single peat that was cut the amounts every year from 1885 to 1963 the names of the people that cut them the jobs that they did year on year how much they were paid even records the moment when workers start to be getting paid insurance Mm -hmm. so you get these fluctuations so you get and the, the interesting thing is that they cut with a unit called the perch I thought, what is a perch? And I, I, I explored, I asked people, and the person that told me, of course, was Ian MacArthur. He knew what a perch was. And basically, a perch, a peat, was a five-yard time, five-yard area of peat, pieces, turfs that were laid out on a surface, and that was one perch. And they were cut, you know, thousands of these in a year. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you can work out how much peat. And they, this, in 1885, this peat bog, which is... About half a kilometre uphill from Bernahaven, uh, they cut 2,700 tonnes of peat. Now, if you think that the Scottish whisky industry is cutting now or using six to 7,000 tonnes, that just shows how important peat was. Wow. And it's not just a sort of a history of what happened year on year, but when you look at the wider picture, you can actually see years where they didn't cut peat. It was too wet. You can see periods where, you know, um, you know the peat cutters went to war. So you can see these fluctuations in the sort of social economic history of the area. You can see periods after war when coal was scarce and then they were cutting peat again. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing archive. And, of course, it's beautifully recorded. That's that. I, was, I, I bet you looked up and yeah. looked round to see when you actually <laughs> and, then, and then there's a map in there of 30 peat banks. And you can, you know, if you, you can go back and you can see every single one now. The bog's never been restored. Uh, it's called the Bog of the Bulls, okay. um, just up behind the distillery. The bog's never been restored, but peat is regrowing. This is really the point about restoration. If those peat, peat drains were blocked, you know, it, you'd really recover peat or accelerate the trapping of carbon much, much faster. So I think Scotland's full of opportunities for restoration and full of opportunities for the, for the whiskey industry to, to engage in. It's something that's very important. I mean... Fascinating book, Mike. We could talk on and on. <laughs> you just mentioned a perch, and I did see in the book there were some glossary terms because there must be some specific terms, not just a perch. Yeah, Did yeah. Have you got a couple? Oh yeah, there was the Ed Fathom. It was the unit the peat, the peat cutters of the island of Ed uh, used to. Um, yeah, it was a unit of okay. peat cutting. Like, what is an Ed Fathom? And, uh, you know. So there's all sorts, you know, I try and you know, introduce some of the sort of science, science terms and, and uh, mm-hmm. explain, explain those it's, as well. But um, I have to say, peat tools as well. Oh, oh yes. Also, a, well, a tarashka, 
but you know, is is the I think I pronounced that uh, right, and the Gallic police won't come knocking at my door. But you know, peat cutting tool is different. You know, throughout uh, Scotland and the different islands, and the peat cutting tool in the Faroes is different as well. They have different names um, as well, and they're different. They're constructed in different ways. The Isla peat cutting Tarishko has a has a um, a use horn on the end as well. I'm not quite sure why. I just I keep on saying finally because that's such a fascinating interview. Uh, we could be here for hours, but uh, we might we might still be here for hours. <laughs> um, it must have been a big subject. How on earth we started with the book and how yeah. you know how long it took you? But how on earth did you gather all this inf- and, and put it into a book? Yeah, um, it must have been a, but just to even outline where you were going to. Yeah, I mean, take us. I actually. Uh, you know, um, I started off with a fairly, you know, free structure and, you know, the book evolves. And I wanted the story of Pete and Whiskey, which is really what this book is about, to take me in lots of ways. And, you know, and you, you know, as you're doing research, you just, you, some of the, the alleys are blind, some open up and some are just huge surprises. But the book actually kind of starts, if you like, in the golden ages of Pete. And then it, it sort of discusses the transition from you know, as coal became more important in, in terms of the way distilleries operated. And we get into some of the science stuff as well. So, but very much part of this book is, is about landscapes, it's about people, it's about Scotland and Scottish history. Then, you know, I also travel to Ireland, and of course Ireland has a huge uh, history of peat use and a very interesting um, story about why Irish whiskey wasn't peated, because, you know, there was much peat in Scotland, so we talk about that. Uh, in the book as well so the book gradually moves towards the sort of environmental mm-hmm. issues and I, I do a, a quite a long walk in here from the from Thurso in the northeast of Scotland all the way to the west coast of Scotland across the flow country which is this amazing peatland um, in the area to, right in kind of Caithness and Sutherland I don't know yeah, if you know that the flow country which actually contains more carbon in this single peatland than all the forests and woodlands of the United Kingdom and that just shows you how important uh, these places are. So I wanted to keep the structure of the book quite free, and it kind of evolved um, depending on the people I, you know, I, I um, talked to. But it was interesting how, how much the whiskey industry has been interested in this. And all, all actually started with Gordon Bruce at Nochdu Distillery. Oh, yes. You know, I, I knocked on his door and said, can I come and talk to you about Pete? And he introduced me to, to Barry Harrison at the Scottish Whiskey Research Institute, who studied, you know, uh, the, the flavour components in peat and why they're different. And then, you know, Brian Kinsman spent some time in his blending laboratory talking about the creation of Elsa Bay as well. So it's it's not just about malts, you know. You know, blended whisky has a big part of the story of, of peat and whisky. So, yeah, and then there's a moment when you have to sort of like, OK, you know, you know draw this all to a close and write the book and... Um, you know, it's uh, you know, and the book has been read by one or two people, quite well known, mm-hmm. uh, who liked it and came up with suggestions. So, yeah, it was quite an organic sort of thing for me. And, Introduction and, by Dave Broom as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, funny she meant that, but yeah, Dave was very passionate about you know this approach to to the relationship between whiskey and place, people, yes, yeah, and, and past and the heritage, and, and that's all. You know, to me, a huge part of why whiskey is such a, an exciting. Drink and the, and, the, and the people that work in it. So. In a hundred years' time, will we have people still be part of the whiskey story? I think it, I think it will, but I think you know we're not at that moment. At the moment, there's some serious discussions going on, some serious you know questions being asked. But I think you know I think one of the issues is you have the distilleries, you have the peat producers and the malt and the maltsters. Mm-hmm. So it's bringing all those people together, and I think you know I think there's a there's a a real uh, interest in making that happen. And, you know, I, I for one, do not want to, to see... You know, I can't think of Scotch whisky without yeah. a flavour. You know, it's a huge part of its DNA, yeah, known, yeah. known throughout the world. And, you know, I think, you know, embracing, you know, peatland restoration, and, we, you know, it isn't a lot... And show the younger generation, who are very keen on... Yeah. And so is every yeah, generation, yeah. but this yeah. is sustainable. Yeah, and I mean, it's... We can, we can. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, people come... You know, I've done a number of events with this book so far, Gordon, and people you know, want to talk about sustainability, and that's really good. I mean, that's one of the reasons... One of the reasons I wrote the book. Well, on the front cover, I believe this to be among the most important books about whiskey ever written. That's for Charles McLean, who knows a few things about <laughs> writing books about whiskey. Yeah. But Pete and Whiskey, The Unbreakable Bond by Mike Billett. 
It's out now. It is. That's a great Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, it's been a wonderful yeah. uh, to take you around today and yeah. to discuss. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to come to, to Glengoyne and to meet you. And um, yeah, it's, there's some events coming up, so, you know, right. and Christmas is coming up. Well, hopefully it's going in a couple of weeks' time and you just look out, because this will go on and on. Yeah. It's one of these books I don't think, it's, it's not just for, as I say, big yeah. dogs, not just for Christmas. It's, got, it's a great book. Yeah. To get for Christmas, that's going to go on and on. I think you'll be busy for a, yeah, I mean, a it's, year or two. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, people who, who've not bought whiskey books before buying this because it's about so much more than, than whiskey. And uh, I'm happy. So, I, <laughs> Mike, thank you very yeah, much for cheers. joining us on yeah. Whiskey Unscripted. Yeah. Fabulous. It was, you know, it could have kept on going for another half an hour after that mm. as well. And we had a great time at Glengoyne. And I just thought, Few things. I mean, it come out I love of it. the. I love the fact that you met him at a distillery that's never used Pete. <laughs> he was keen to come and see it. He was. He was keen to come and see it. He certainly was more optimistic than I've heard some people in the industry. And I've had one or two people saying that because of the younger generation are very sustainable, very green, they will just not want to entertain whiskies that have used peat. But if you hear from the professor, and he said if you get the right people to engage with then it can be explained that peat is regrowing the carbon capture is as um, oh, for sure. effective as it can be previously and it is a sustainable process so it was very very interesting I have to say very good book and that's a nice Christmas gift for anyone out there so well done to Mike Billet there Gordon yeah, I said I'll try, and bring the, yep. I'll try and bring the tone down with a look mm-hmm. at um, put it this way last year we were in the peat Zaria on the island mm-hmm. of Isla. So right, which I think yeah. one of the great names for our, our restaurant. Any famous peats in the whiskey story? Famous peats, Gordon. Give us a give us a famous peat. Oh well, I can give one that's very close to home and one who is, I think, been transformational in this industry and one who unfortunately left us this year is of course Mr. Peter Russell. Yes. A Genuinely a, a visionary, genuinely one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, and um, you know, instrumental in transforming Ian McLeod to what it is now, um, and is inducted into the Hall of Fame for um, the Whiskey Magazine. So a really, really um, important Peter within the industry. That's a good one. That's a great one, Pete. 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 Another Pete. Famous Pete's uh, Peter Mackey of White Horse. Born just outside Stirling, partner he worked with, family had leased Lagavulin. And Peter Mackey went across to Lagavulin again, Gordon, we're in the island of Isla, mm-hmm. and registered the brand White Horse 1891, which became almost an instant hit, a blend of whiskey from the from the island and the mainland together. And Peter Mackey was quite a, well known for his fiery mm-hmm. temperament shall we say, but he took a brand and really, really pushed it to the very, very top of Scotland's whiskey uh, mm-hmm. world. Sadly, his son died in World War One. The man that was going to succeed his father didn't make it out of the trenches, World War One, mm. So he died, 24, and then it was made a public company and DCL, the big company of Buchanan, Dewar and uh, Walker, mm-hmm. it in 1927. Uh, Peter Arkell. Oh, yes. Who worked with Anok, um, um, New York-based illustrator. He worked on, so there was the Arkle series for Anok, from what I can remember. And so Peter Blake. Ah! He worked with McAllen, the iconic British pop artist, Peter Blake. That's right, that's right, because he was one of the other labels from 1926, Sir Peter Blake. That's right. That'll maybe go for another couple of million. Famous Peter's... Well, there's one who works for a certain I am Isla whiskey brand, son of Anthony, Peter Wills. Um, he travels the world and talks about, obviously, the wonderful Kilhoman, and um, he works in the industry. But there's not a huge amount of Peters, is there? Yeah, there's not many Peters, Gordon. Just one from our good friend, Petey Pete, who obviously Pete. He, he just was enjoying all the sort of, from the last episodes, the different malts. And different grains that give different flavours, mm-hmm. which kind of we've touched upon a little bit in this show. And mm-hmm. he just wondered how many of those flavours can survive the distillation process. Well, I mean, you know, it, there's so many variables here, but I mean, you know, there's there's 
everything has to work together. Not everything, you know, people talk about the influence of water, or the influence of yeast, or the influence of malted barley with its all its enzymes, or the influence of rye, which you actually need enzymes to help work. So there's a whole, if we think of, let's take rye as a prime example. We think of rye as a peppery product. It's going to deliver a peppery style whiskey, which it can do in certain parts of the world. So therefore it is surviving the distillation process. Let's be frank and honest about it. So like all these things, you know, distillation is the final part of a crescendo of activity to make a whiskey. Yes, it's very influential. Yes, there's high temperatures involved, but there's subtlety in there as well. How, depending on how you do it, how you heat the stills up, all that type of thing. So, of course, that can happen, and you know that's why the, the different grains do bring different characteristics. Good for you, uh, good for you, uh, PTP. Thanks for that question. And it just leaves us with a, a couple of cocktails, but this one, he's named it "Smoke on the Waterfall." Uh, Thirty mils of Glengoyne, ten first fill retail, thirty ml mezcal, fifteen ml sweet vermouth, ten ml white cream de cacao, five ml of agave syrup, two dashes of Angostura bitter. That sounds great. I'm already uh, thirsty. Maybe as we head towards the ends of the podcast, I just thought mm-hmm. a, a little feature we used to do was a year that changed whiskey. Mm. This is a peated episode and about that wonderful substance that we use to flavour the barley. It gives that whiskey, smoky flavours. You could you could argue, Gordon, the year that changed whiskey for scotch and peat could be the year 1919, when the 18th Amendment was enacted in the States, brought to the House by Andrew Volstead, an obscure Minnesotan uh, senator, and that brings in prohibition in 1920, Uh, of course, January of 1920, Uh, the manufacture, sale, transportation, import and export of intoxicating liquors is now prohibited. And there's only three exemptions. (laughs) Exemptions. Mm. <laughs> Here's the three exemptions. There's always a way around them. <laughs> Number one, liquor for medicinal purposes. Mm. Number two, industrial alcohol. And number three, alcohol for sacramental purposes. Mm. Now, yeah. which one of those we're going to get abused? <laughs> I think predominantly the first one. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, I think that's why Lefroy is in a green bottle. That's a great. That is correct. I think Cutty Sapna across, I think, uh, or maybe yeah. it was White Horse, but certainly Lefroy is a single malt, managed to reclassify itself um, by the Bureau of Firearm Tobacco and whatnot to be a medicine. And you could get it at a chemist. I think Walgreens, the chemist, mm-hmm. and their shares went through the roof uh, when people realised the medicine would be a lovely Scotch whisky. Because yeah. of the phenols and all that in there, well, it has that it has that nose to it, you know, and that's and that's the beauty of the phenolics. However, you utilize your stills and your 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 fermentation and your we spoke about it earlier that you know your wort clarity can absolutely determine how you dial up, dial down the those phenolic compounds that appear. Um, and stick to your barley grain at the beginning of the process. That's it. The other thing that I mentioned just, I mentioned Mikul Tor earlier, and Mikul Tor is this new Highland peated whiskey from, I said, Glen Allachy. The one thing they've done that's quite interesting, most of the time we talk about PPM, we talk about it in the barley at the beginning of production. So if you have a, let's just for the sake of ease, go for 100 PPM malted barley, by the time you've made your spirit, you've lost two-thirds of it. So you're probably down about 30 ppm. And that's a really, really important point. So, um, you know, when you hear about ppm, generally in most most whiskies, it's, it's in the barley. So you can possibly assume that your whiskey is going to be at least two-thirds less than that. Uh, possibly a little bit more as you mature it further. That's just something to always consider. I think that's absolutely right. And I've just mentioned about the Lafroig and the Prohibition. Mm. I have spoke to a few people that were saying their grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, mm. that's where they got the taste of mm. that smoky whiskey, was getting the legal stuff from the chemists. And people just assumed Scotch whiskey was smoky in America. That's the general perception. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it still is, I, actually, sometimes. Only according to one or two people I took round, that was their 
theory of why that smoke in Scotland became yeah. synonymous because that was the only stuff they could get legally in the twenties. Whereas bizarrely, I think there's more whiskies that are unpeated now. So in fact, there's quite a lot more. I think so. Yeah. Well, Gordon, that's a great episode. It's been Thanks a pleasure. To- to, to Mike Bill, I'm going to enjoy my Kalila as well. And you enjoy your inch journey there. It's a great dram. And I think, unless there's any other business, Gordon, we have done a Pete special. On we have done a Pete special. What are you having for dinner? No, I'm going to have a Pete, so. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Episode. Bye-bye. Eight, Bye-bye. Done. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-b